Well, hello and welcome again to Coming Home Network Presents, where we have conversations about the kinds of questions that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic Church and wondering if they should become a part of it. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, and if you're someone dealing with questions like the ones we're going to be discussing today, today we're talking about counseling and psychology and and all kinds of things related to anthropology. Um, if you're wrestling with these questions, please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. We have tons of free resources. And if you're looking for accompaniment uh, on your own journey and fellowship and encouragement, then reach out to us through our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. Of course, we don't have anything to sell. <laughs> so uh, we encourage you, if you want to support this work, go to chnetwork.org donate, and you can be a supporter of that. Uh, today, um, as I just mentioned, we get to talk to a couple of guests with counseling and psychology backgrounds and dig into the question of Catholic anthropology and its understanding of the human person, how that's similar to and different from some of the other worldviews out there. And if today's episode's uninteresting, please pin it on me because our guests today both have pretty fascinating stories. Uh, we have Deacon Kevin Stevenson. He's executive director of St. Augustine Behavioral Health Systems. He joins us from the Diocese of Tulsa. And then we've got Dr. Brent Robbins. He's professor uh, of psychology and director of the MA and community psychology program at Point Park U in Pittsburgh. There's actually a whole lot more I could say about both of you. Uh, but <laughs> just That would take most of the episode. Gentlemen, welcome. Welcome, man. Pleasure to be here. All right. So I encourage people to check out your Journey Home episodes, Deacon Kevin. You have a background in Anglicanism, charismatic Christianity. Dr. Robbins, you are a cradle Catholic who went into uh, agnosticism and atheism a little bit. Now you're both practicing Catholics, and you go into those stories in those episodes. But I want to start uh, by asking each of you, and I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Robbins. Where were you in your spiritual journey when you decided that you were going to pursue professional work in the field of psychology and counseling? Yeah, well, when I started, I got my bachelor's in... Uh media communications with filmmaking. And I had a minor in literature and language. So psychology wasn't really on my radar. And I was inter I was, I got a job working in a halfway house with uh, individuals with head injury. And I really got fascinated by, you know, the brain and how these people were impacted. But most of all, I really enjoyed being in a sort of counseling type of role with a lot of these people informally. I wasn't a formal counselor, but I was doing a lot of emotional support. And I realized that was a that was seemed much more congruent with, you know, my vocation than uh the filmmaking track that I was looking at, especially since I wanted to be a family person and I knew if I got into movie making I'd have to be uh it would be much more unstable for a family. So that's kind of what got me started. And I was also going through kind of a period of depression, really. It was, it was a kind of existential <laughs> confusion, you know, like what, what is my life all about? At that time I was, I was kind of reading a lot. I, I was reading a lot of world religion as well as psychology and kind of looking for some sense of meaning and purpose in my life and not really finding it. And the funny story is that one day I just spontaneously got up and went to the movies and I was looking because I was feeling kind of bummed out. I was looking for like a really serious film and I ended up uh, the only movie that was playing, uh, you know, that, that uh, hadn't already started when I got to the movie theater was Groundhog Day, you know, the movie with Bill Murray. <laughs> 
And, one of the uh, greatest thought, movies of all time. And, yes, <laughs> uh, I will fight people on this one. I I am totally with you. I think it's it's people don't appreciate the depth of that film. But I was in a in a place psychologically and spiritually where I that that spoke spoke to me. The depth of that film spoke to me, and uh, I I felt like I was in that kind of state where he was just killing himself over and over again. You know, in a state of kind of despair. And the latter part of the film is he really finds meaning and purpose by being for others, right? Orienting his life uh, in a way that is about building community, about loving other people, not being about so About not focused. punching Ned in the face, right? It's, <laughs> right, you know, it's, a yeah. very, it's a major growth in virtue. Yeah, instead of punching him, he hugs him, <laughs> you know? So, uh, so I was struck by that. It, it made sense to me. And I immediately came home from seeing that film and went, you know what, I'm going to go into psychology. I started looking around at uh, programs and uh, put in applications. I started reading everything I could get my hands on in psychology and philosophy. And so I went through this sort of explosion of growth intellectually. And then I ended up going to Duquesne University. And they that's a Catholic university. Although their program doesn't have a real strong Catholic focus, uh, it's, you know. Pretty... And you were not a practicing Catholic at the time, right? And I was not a practicing Catholic at the time. I was, I was agnostic. I had, I had lost my faith. I didn't really believe in God. I, I, there was a part of me that wanted to because I felt that would give my life some meaning and direction. But I really couldn't bring myself intellectually to assent to that. I couldn't reconcile you know, what I had learned as an undergraduate, for example, and in my in my psychology and other courses, because there was, a you know, everybody, I think, is aware of these days that in higher ed, and you can especially see this in psychology, there is a pretty consistent message that attacks the faith, you know, whether you're taking a history course or a psychology course, or, you know, the, it was not necessarily explicitly attacking the faith, but presenting you know, metaphysical and epistemological frameworks that are incompatible with, you know, belief in God. And so yeah, I struggled. I yeah, I struggled with yeah, that. Yeah, I would have, I want to pause you there because I think this is a great place uh, to show just how different your situation was from Duke <laughs> Heavens, right? Because you're right. coming at it from like sort of this godless thing and, you know, religion is wish fulfillment dreams and like people are just trying to make themselves feel better. Whereas Deacon Kevin, I mean, uh, I encourage people to go watch your story because you have very strong uh, Christian emphasis in a lot of different places in your life. So where were you spiritually when you started to pursue psychology? Well, at that time, um, I was a Protestant minister and mm -hmm. I went to Oral Roberts University. So I was pursuing a master's in divinity. But then uh, at in that period of time, there was I was part of a mega church really involved in the charismatic movement, the mega church. But at that time in the early 90s, um, we just came through one scandal after the next. It was just one collapse after the next within mega churches. And we, we don't need, everybody's aware of the fall. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So here we are with this spiritual charismatic movement, these mega churches, and we just see these ministers just collapsing all over the place in scandal. And I was aware of some things that were going on, even privately. So my thoughts in seminary was, man, I don't want to be, I, I could be the next guy. I mean, I, I could see myself being the next guy. And so um, not only did I pursue a Master of Divinity, but they had a marriage and family therapy program. And at Old Roberts, Uni Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this is like the buck of the Bible Belt. 
you know, so um, so it, this was a great place for me to even start pursuing a master's degree in counseling. Because really, I really want to work on my own stuff. I, I at least learned that taking pastoral care classes. But I was really afraid. I was really afraid of men and women that I admired of just living shadow lives. And I wanted to say, okay, what could I do to make sure I'm not the next statistic? So that's what kind of moved me into that. It's just... Um, just the comparison between um, supposedly strong spiritual life and growing fast in the mega churches, and then these scandals, you know, and and even even within the Catholic, I wasn't really involved in the Catholic Church, but there was even just the idea about this double life, and so um, that's what really motivated me to really start working on my own stuff because I was really afraid of the way I was thinking, my family of origin, because addiction runs in my family. You know, and that goes back generations. I'm thinking, you know, that, that could be me. So that's what really started me into counseling and sort of looking at that aspect and trying to combine that, at least with Protestant theology. And it was really new at that time in the 90s. It wasn't much of that. But that's what really started my journey. Yeah, and I, if I understand this uh, correctly, um, both of you, well, so you had some brushes with determinism, Dr. Robbins, I would imagine, Oh, yeah. uh, through um, atheist and agnostic approaches to um, the human person and counseling questions. But if I recall correctly, Deacon Stevenson, you also had some brushes with Calvinism, <laughs> and, which also has kind of like deterministic stuff. So um, yeah. let's start with you, with you, uh, Dr. Robbins. How much was determinism playing into the, the kinds of formations that you were, you were getting as a psychologist and counselor? Yeah, well, it's very deterministic. I mean, the whole – I mean, the whole – way of knowing in psychology and psychological science is really using statistics to predict and control behavior. So the implication is that, you know, if you have the right theory or model, then not only can you predict people's behavior, but you can generalize that to any person. So it tends to de-emphasize, because you're looking through that framework, you kind of lose the uniqueness of each person. And I that was something that I, I recognized even before, you know, I I went back, came back to the church. It was, it was something that bothered me because when you're working as a clinician, you might see clients that all kind of fit the description of major depressive disorder, but none of them are the same. They're, the, the qualitative distinctions between their experiences of depression can be quite vast, even though they fit sort of the menu of the, the diagnostic criteria. And I was aware of that. And so I was interested in people like Gordon Alport, who, uh, in the early 20th century were, was talking about the importance of ideographic methods to understand, you know, the individual, you know, and the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the individual, the need for qualitative research, case study, biography, and not just, you know, st statistical analyses. So I think I was, maybe because I grew up Catholic, you know, I had that in the background where I was, I had intuition that something wasn't right here, you know, and I was looking for, you know, some framework that could integrate and pay proper due to agency, human agency, free will, also human dignity, right? The because right. part of part of agency is about recognizing the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of the person. No person is replaceable. Every you know the, this idea of non fungibility, where you know, you can't just exchange one person for another person. There's something they're not going to behave the same way in the same situation because there's some X factors that you can't 
put your finger on. I mean, you've, you highlighted that difference in Calvinism, I remember, Deacon Kevin, in your episode. Like, you know, this this idea that, you know, you're, you're programmed, uh, the elect have some sort of, I mean, there's no free will in that worldview. I mean, I imagine you saw some of that tension, too. Yeah, yeah. It, it was very, it was very um, reductionistic. Um, even early on when I was looking at Calvinism, if you're the elect, it was impossible for you to fall. It was impossible. But if you did sin, then you were never saved in the beginning. I mean, that's just how it, pretty much how it Which worked. is a horrifying thing to think about. <laughs> what a, you talk about something that you need to get counseling for. If that's oh my goodness. you as a kid, my goodness. You know, but God bless them. But but that that that's how it was. I mean, it was fail safe. You could you, you know, it was just all predetermined before. You know, and so there there's this rigid determination determination um from from their beginning. So, but after a while, I just re- I just rejected that because it boiled down for for my ancestors who were of African descent. Um, all my ancestors were never determined from the very beginning of time to be saved. Because you know, and, and then it was just a few people that were determined to be saved and so to me it was repugnant i mean just on the face value of that when i, when I was looking at that but um you know but they, they they argued it with certitude i mean they were just confident that's just the way it was you know it was all predetermined and if you struggled then you probably weren't saved in the first place so sucks to be you kind of thing so that that now i'm really being minimalistic but that's how i look that's how i looked at when i was a young college student how calvinists looked at themselves and looked at the world it was really black and white well, and black and white, I think it drives home your point too. And you know, this may sound like it's a it's a problem with you know, kind of Bible Belt Christianity that has some racial issues that it needs to get over because slavery is kind of like the original sin of the United States of America. But yeah. Dr. Robbins, I imagine that some of this anthropological baggage of like you know predeterminism and in, in the racial questions is probably also. I mean, you you don't have to read too hard into some of the the psychological texts of determinism to find there's some racial baggage in there too. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that I teach history and systems of psychology, it's one of the courses that I teach it all actually at all levels of the university in our doctoral program, undergraduate. Uh, and one of the things I find kind of remarkable and conspicuous in its absence is you almost rare, almost never see a history textbook in psychology that talks about eugenics and because eugenics was such an enormous influence in early psychology. In fact, it, psychology as an experimental discipline and also psychiatry emerged, modern psychiatry emerged within the context of eugenics. Uh, and even the st- correlational analyses, you know, like the Pearson correlation coefficient, those who are familiar with statistics. Correlational analysis was developed for eugenic purposes to try to show relationships between certain racial typologies and certain, you know, uh, you know, intelligence, for example, or or other uh, characteristics with the with the expressed intent. It wasn't even covert. They were out in the open about it to identify, you know, cacogenic you know, families with bad genes that they that could be eliminated from the population. I mean, so the. And what's interesting here, there's if you follow, if you track the story, the originally it was actually a Catholic uh, psychologist by the name of Morel in uh, in France who began to talk about the concept of moral gener- gener- degeneration in the culture as contributing to mental health problems and drug and alcohol problems. But within a generation, 
his idea of moral degeneration became reconceptualized as genetic genetic deterioration oh, wow. within the family and that and, and emerging out of that came this eugenic framework fused with darwinism and you know uh, mendelian uh, genetics so that psychology and psychiatry are born out of that original sin uh as well and i think that it's still there's still even the tools we're using have this tainted history and that's something I'm, I teach in my courses and I think about a lot. It's one of those things I'm very passionate about in terms of aggressively pursuing in my inquiry because it's, it's uh, really at the forefront of, you know, where we need to go as a discipline is sort of ferreting out those assaults on human dignity that are, haven't been critically examined, that are just adopted in an unreflective way. Well, between the two of you, you guys just covered like four of the next questions that I was about to ask. <laughs> um, but I think that's a, this is a huge question because, um, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit. You've already spoken to what the limits were of your formation on questions of counseling and psychology and 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 psychiatry. And I mean, I, I'm lumping all these things together. I know that they're individual disciplines, you know, and and some of them are academic, and some of them are like it's different when you're sitting across from a person who needs help, but. Um, without going into the whole story of how you became Catholic, how has the Catholic understanding of the human person, the Catholic understanding of human dignity, the Catholic understanding of agency, Deacon Kevin, uh, really expanded how you look at these questions? Yeah. You know, what well, Brent was talking about humanism, and I, I think the challenge I found um, with my training was very humanistic, where man became the measure of all things. And even though... In parts of counseling, we honor free will, we honor the human person, but at its core, man is a measure of all things. And, and, and that's where the problem is. You know, if, if I am the measure of all things, then, then I'm pursuing my own good. I'm pursuing what I consider to be beautiful, what I consider to be true. So your truth, your beauty, your good. The, the, the problem with that is that that leads to tyranny and it leads to self-destruction as we see in communities. You know, if, if you, you say, if I, if, if I say, well, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, but what really happens in practice is about power. What we find is, well, if I have more power than you, then my truth is going to trump over your truth. And it, it leads to tyranny. We see that in, in society. So it finally breaks down. It sounds nice. Well, you know, your truth is your truth. My, you know, my truth is my truth. But what, really what happens Tyranny begins to happen because then you find those with power are the ones imposing will. So that that just didn't work. And and even as a as a Christian counselor, I, I just saw there was a there was a disconnect between who God said I was. And through my so through my journey to Catholicism, I began to discover that Catholics. You know, you talk about eugenics. You know, God bless her soul, but we know Margaret Sanger. Um, she's the one that really coined that, and she came from a Catholic family. You read her biography. It's just a tragedy. It's just a tragedy with Margaret Sanger and how I was looking at her family and origin, and this, it's really sad that someone that was formed as a Catholic came, came across a crisis, and I don't know what happened, but something changed in her mind, and she picked up the cause for eugenics, but it's, but it's funny. It came from, she was raised Catholic, but, but anyway, um, well, as I was trying to search for truth, because I knew that if man was a measure of all things, then we're all in trouble because I've seen tyranny. So it has to be more than that. And 
Well, one thing about Catholicism, you know, they've been thinking about this topic for a very long time. And psychology is really a modern phenomenon. It really is. But maybe 100 and some odd, 50 years. So how did people survive prior to that time? And, and naturally, if you just look at history, it was the Catholic Church that really helped people define who they were from the, from the very beginning, first, second century. And, and, I, and I, as I was studying even at Protestant University about church history, and they're, they're pretty, they kind of rushed over. They, went, they really want to start the Reformation, but they kind of went over quickly over history. But it was amazing that the whole idea about hospice and hospitality really came from the Catholic Church. It was the Catholics, second, third century, on the religious that were gathering up um, Greco-Roman folks that were thrown onto the streets, and, and they were the ones that bring them to the monasteries and teaching them and caring for them and providing care. So really the whole idea about hospice, hospitality, or hospitals came from the Catholic Church. So I'm thinking, wow, these guys have been doing this for a long time. You know, I mean, how did the church survive before Freud or Jung hit the scene? I mean, how on earth did we possibly care for anybody? You know? And then, then I, you know, I look at church history and I see centuries after centuries of church of, of, of the church caring for the sick. But from a perspective that, that God was a center of all things. And even from a Greco-Roman, even from a Greek classical mindset, you know, that, that we look for the good and we look for the true and we look for the beauty, which comes from Aristotle and, and, and Plato and, and that kind of thing. The church just really put her thoughts towards that. I just found that fascinating. I just really found, and even as a charismatic, you know, former, I, I saw that even within the church experience, there was healings, there were miracles, those, those type of things. So the Catholic Church from the very beginning combined a whole range of things to care for the seeking soul, you know, not only just providing for their physical needs, but also for their psychological and emotional and spiritual needs. The church has really been doing that. I mean, you can just look at history. So, so that's what slowly started to turn my mind towards Catholicism, because I realized that prior to Freud being born, We've been doing this work for 2,000 years or whatever the math would be for a thousand plus years. So that kind of sort of turned my mind towards the church and what she thought about the human person, you know, and I started thinking about Thomism. I started, I started, and I never even discovered what Thomism was. It was, it was, I, and, and when I was in seminary as a Protestant, we didn't even cover Thomas Aquinas. Nobody could understand what he was talking about. So, so we just kind of made a little check. Okay. Thomas Aquinas, we were right to the Reformation. But you know, as I was going through formations of deacon, I started discovering Thomism and Thomas Aquinas, and and classical thinking and scholasticism. It was a whole change of thought, you know, and it really sort of helped me think about the human person, how I could care for that person, who they really were. Yeah, uh, and you know, Doctor Robbins, I'm I'm sure you had kind of similar sorts of things in your formation as you're trying to figure all this stuff out as well. Yes, for sure. I I think. Uh... I'll go back to sort of the history of psychology. One of the things that a figure that was a big influence on me, I think early on was reading Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and some of his other works. And, you know, he, as Deacon Kevin said, uh, the, this concept of the will to power, right, is a sort of replacement for a will to meaning. Like this, this search for a transcendent meaning, he calls it the ultimate meaning, which would ultimately be God, right? So the one's life is oriented toward the highest good in the in the ancient Greek and Roman sense. The trans the three transcendentals would fulfill that purpose, truth, good, goodness and beauty. And that when we are starved of that, when we're lacking that, we look for lesser alternatives, you know, and that becomes a kind of idolatry. Right. When we look for 
power as a way to replace that, which is really a worship of the self because we want to assert our will, impose our own will on the world and a will to pleasure, which is another kind of form of self-worship, are both described by Frankl as sort of the origins of neurosis and mental illness, at least stuff that's not clearly biological, uh, you know, that spiritual, there's spiritual and there's psychological and there's biological sort of causes of suffering that people experience. I talked about working with people with head injury, right? And clearly that's a biological problem, but it raises all kinds of spiritual and psychological struggles, just like any kind of medical problem does. And I learned that sometimes the hardest thing to deal with as a person with head injury, for example, or depression or anxiety or psychoses is that you uh, you have to it, that there's a struggle to make sense of that to find meaning in that and find purpose and and we I could it's very clear in the research literature that people who are able to connect to a transcendent power to God uh, are develop a kind of resiliency even a capacity for post-traumatic growth like experiencing trauma, and rather than being sort of broken by it, actually growing and flourishing in ways that seem beyond reason. You know, we can see that in the data. There's a construct called hardiness. Sometimes it's called existential courage. And they found they psychologists bumped into this accidentally because they were they were doing industrial organizational research. So they were studying a company, and in the middle of collecting data, the company went through a major crisis. And they found that a lot of people, their psychological health and well-being went down. But there's a certain group of people who actually improved in the face of that crisis. And when they began to look, do a deep dive into the data, they found that the people who were able to do that had this overarching sense. They had a coherent worldview. They had a sense of transcendent meaning. Uh, and the, they developed a measure called the hardiness scale to sort of get at that. Uh, so I think that Frank, that really supports Frankel's research. Uh, there's another psychologist, a Canadian psychologist named Paul Wong, who's done similar research on meaning, meaning in life. And uh, there's a lo- number of constructs that sort of get at this. But uh, I think, it, but then looking back at, at history, the, the emergence of modernity in modern psychology, it happens after, you know, several hundred years of a transition from a classical view that was still, that was being integrated with uh, Christianity in in Christendom in the high middle ages, Thomas Aquinas really being the apex of that. And then after that, you start to see the introduction. I think I sort of trace it. I mean, this is debatable, but I started to trace it back to, you know, uh, a return to certain classical texts like Plato, the turn away from Aristotle. But I think one thing that's really interesting is the way Marsilio Ficino, you know, in the new Plato's Academy, in Florence, Italy, is right at the heart of the Renaissance, was beginning to translate some ancient texts like uh, Hermes Trismegistus and some of these sort of ancient magical texts, and people began to flirt with the occult. And one of the things I think is interesting that I noticed in a lot of the literature on the occult when I went back and started to read these texts that were being translated is there's this assertion, there's this emphasis on the will, that in many ways that's what magic is. It's about it. It's about deciding what you want, not 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 sort of abandoning oneself to God's providence, but it's about figuring out what I want and then attempting to use one's own power to harness spiritual forces to assert one's own will, right? Using angels or demons in in theurgy or whatever it is the practice is to to 
get the these angelic beings, often demonic beings, to do your will. And what I what struck me about the language is how similar it is to some of the epistemological language we use in the sciences, right, where we're trying to predict and control things. It, and from within a secular humanistic perspective, it excludes the moral question of, well, should we be predicting and controlling things in this way? Like, what are the aims? What are the outcomes? And always in, in secular humanism, it ends up coming back to really impoverished, uh, impoverished teleology, where it's all about maybe efficiency is the best they can do, because efficiency is something you can quantify. So I thought what I, I thought something that was an insight that came to me is how there's a certain continuity between a kind of magical worldview and a kind of deterministic secular humanism. Both are about asserting the will rather than, say, the classical uh, Greeks like Plato and Aristotle and, say, Thomas Aquinas or, or uh, Augustine, where it's all about conforming one's will to a higher reality. That's such a huge yeah. shift. It, it's become very that was clear. Actually yeah. This this is really yeah. one of the things that I wanted to 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 really drill down on. This is this is really kind of why I tricked you both into being on here, you know? <laughs> partly so that you would uh, Deacon Kevin would talk about your negative run-ins with Calvinism and Dr. Robbins. You talk about your negative run-ins with uh, you know secular determinism, uh, because Catholicism very much encourages a uh, study of the human person because that's part of you know like all the sciences, it's a it's an exploration of the handiwork of God, but in a certain sense. The Catholic scientists, and this goes for whether they're in astronomy or in uh, biochemistry or in the psychological sciences, you're not entering it in, into it in the exact same kind of way that a secular scientist is, because rather than trying to solve a code, right, you're entering into kind of a mystery, right? And so, in some senses, there there has to there's a different kind of I mean, maybe Deacon Kevin, you can speak to this, uh, you know, since this is also your job as someone who's a deacon, like, who has liturgical functions, like, uh, it, it was there kind of the sense in which you had to have a little bit more humility as you approached the question of the human person than you might have had before when you were trying to, I guess, analyze the human person as like a, yeah. like a lab rat? Yeah, because um, through my journey... Becoming Catholic, I began to redefine who the human person was, and, the, and we get that about the Imago Deo. But my, I, we are made in the image of God, and the soul is sacred, and it's sacred ground, and that's where the Holy Spirit moves, and that's where we. we I, I do a lot of inner child work. People have been traumatized, and a lot of folks have been traumatized when they're children, when they're most vulnerable. But the paradox is where most people have been traumatized. That's where the power grows, like Viktor Frankl talked about. You know, um, it, it, even at a time when you feel you'll be, you'll be overwhelmed, you still have that choice. You still can make a choice. And so I, I look at I look at the soul or the child side of us as a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And no matter how traumatized a person has been, they can still have a spark. And I appeal to that spark within that person that may be so wounded because I know there that's where the Holy Spirit dwells. Even for those that may not acknowledge Christ, but in my mind, every client that I see, I see them made in the image of God. No matter what they have done, they are made in the image of God. And I know the Holy Spirit can speak to that part of them that may be so wounded, that may be a small spark. And so I go in there with hope. You know, I worked as a chaplain, and there's a term that we talked about in 
what's called the incarnational presence. That that means even just by me being present to somebody, Christ is here. I don't need to articulate it. I don't need to do anything. Just be present. And I know that Christ is here incarnationally through me for the person that's suffering. So it just brings a whole realm of dimension to the care that I offer people because I now see them made in God's image. And that part of them is immortal. That's another piece too. And I never really thought about that before, but that soul is immortal. That spark those infusions of that body at the moment of conception is immortal. And that's the part that I appeal to, and that's the part that I pray to that the Lord, that wherever their wounds may be, we may that, that part of them may come alive. You know, so um so I have that hope going into my sessions and when I talk to people that have been wounded, that even no matter what the wounds may be, you are not your wound. You're still made in the image of God and that part of you is immortal. Immortal. And it's amazing, you know, just thinking about that. And knowing that through the Holy Spirit, through grace, through mercy, through miracles, God can do can, God can do amazing things. You know, I like what Brent had said that he really tapped on. This is something for me to think about. Going back to secular psychology and the connection with the occult, I always mm-hmm. had a sense that there was just something about that. It even feels Luciferian in a sense, where this yeah. whole focus on me, the focus on matter. You know, I think there, I think beneath that, and we see, we see people that grasp that philosophy, like Marx, um, mm-hmm. Karl Marx. They, a lot of these guys were Luciferian. I mean, a lot of them um, practice the occult. Right. And there's a real connection between the occult, at the turn of the century, some of these atheists, some of these, some of these thick thinkers, whether it's Marx or Freud, there's, there's this diabolical piece. It's hard for me to put my finger on it, but you can kind of sense that something's not right here. <laughs> something's just not right. This, Worship of matter, this worship of the person, that, mm-hmm. you know. So, and you know, that, that's, to, I mean, I need to think further about that. I think there's a yeah. I, there's I, a I don't need to up the road from my house, and every time I pass them, I'm like, this person thinks that they if they, it's a desire to manipulate nature, right? It's a yeah. desire to to it, manipulate it, it, nature. That I think back on the rise. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 Luciferian again. I I, I don't want to throw that term out there, but there's just but you, you know, Brent, you talked about this control. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I get a sense where that comes from, and that control is really about manipulation. And right. I talk about tyranny, right? You always see that where when I right. force my will, what happens, tyranny takes place. We see it in history. Yep. And I think yep. beneath all of that is Luciferianism. I, I, I right. just have this hunch. I throw that term out there because if it's, if you're not focused on the Imago Deo, then what are you focusing on? It's, right. either, it's either one or the other. There is no space in between those two. Right. It's really one or the other. Well, I think, yeah, I, I've kind of surprised. I wasn't looking for that connection to the occult when I was studying the the the, the idea of the will, you know. But that's the 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 historical evidence kind of laid that out, it, that case wow. out on its own, you know, that there was this connection to the cult that right around the time where you have this transition, this reintroduction of, you know, ancient, you know, magical practices, some of which. Egypt, were Egyptian. Hermes Trismegistus, nobody really knew who this figure was. There was a lot of mythology that this person went back to the time of Moses. and But you, it was bringing back alchemy and astrology and theurgy. And and there were people who were involved in uh, practices, you know, necromancy and you know, attempts to communicate with the dead, seances. The whole movement of spiritism was a, has its roots in that yeah. occult, in that movement. Uh, and also just the attempt to 
uh, harness the power of angelic or demonic beings that you can see 14th, 15th century, you know, starting to become more popular. Even some, in some cases, you know, priests uh, were engaged in these practices at yeah. that time. And, uh, wow. and you, you know how it is when you, when you start dealing with the demonic, you think you're going to be controlling them, but they're, <laughs> they're pulling the strings. <laughs> That's a trick, man. It's a trick. Don't it's, do it's it. It's a trick. Right. Right. So, it's a, um, back away. <laughs> so, so with all this, I mean, we've, man, we've covered some really interesting, uh, stuff, but I think it, it is really important to talk about, um, I mean, that, that difference between having humility before what God has made versus right. thinking of yourself as, um, the measure of all things and therefore able to analyze and control and harness the power. I mean, that's, I think right. that is a very, that I was going to talk about the incarnation this whole 45 minutes, but we, that's yeah. where, this is where we went. Right. But, uh, but you both said something at the beginning that I want to come back to, uh, when I asked you where you were in your spiritual journey and why you wanted to get involved with this, both of you said something about your own woundedness. Right. And I know, mm -hmm. um, this is something that's played into both of your stories. Um, I wonder if Deacon Kevin, you could talk about why, um, how that kind of conforms you to to something Christological by by having your own wounds and passion, your own sufferings being the vehicle that causes you to go identify with the suffering of another. I mean, that's the cross, you know. Right. That's the cross. Right. It, it's a true paradox and a mystery. I know we throw that term at mystery, but the, the scripture says that when I am weak, He becomes strong. That that that's the peace. And my weakness is humbling, is being humble before him. You know, I did a lot of 12 step work. I just love 12 step. And as I did, as I researched Bill W. and his conversion, um, he was influenced by Catholics in the 40s at that time when he was on the floor of a psychiatric hospital. You know, there were, there were sisters, there were priests that were kind of forming him when he was, when he came to the realization of the 12 steps. I mean, he, he didn't, it was like a, an inspiration, but he was formed in many ways. And I look at the 12 steps as really as a sacrament of reconciliation. If you, if you look at it, the first mm. thing is like, we come to realize that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. You know, and so for a lot of people that have done 12 step work, it's really a step of reconciliation, but the first step is humility. It's, it's coming to realize. It's like this inspiration. I know that, I think it's grace. I believe it's grace. And it's just this awareness the Holy Spirit gives anybody that's suffering with addiction, you know, but, but, but the step of humility is the way in. And, and 12 step is not typically a Christian movement, but I, from how I've seen it formed and from what I read, it really is the sacrament of reconciliation, if you look at it. It's, it is like a thorough examination of your conscience and moving you through. You know, but the first step is one of humility, and that's what I've learned. I, 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 and, I, and it's a paradox. When, when I, as, as I was dealing with my family of origin issues and with history of addictions, and for me losing my, um, losing my first marriage, and all sort of things and me leaving ministry and all the things that I dealt with as a Protestant, I was humbled. I mean, I was mad. I became a deist for a moment of time. That was my excuse to be mad at God. I said, I thought the only thing that existed in the universe was mathematics and that, that we can prove, but nothing else. I was silly. I just, I just used it as an excuse. I mean, I, I could see the patterns in the universe, but, but, but that, those patterns didn't talk, see, or feel, you know. I used it as an excuse, but God was so merciful. But eventually, through circumstances, I came to a place of humility. I had, I had to face my own wrongs. I had to face my own sins. And almost through a 12-step process over time, I came to the point where I said, Lord, 
my life is insane. My life is insane. Lord, have mercy. And slowly, slowly, through various things, God started putting some good people that were Catholic into my life. And it took maybe six years before I converted to Catholicism. But I use that as a, as a pretext when I visit with clients because I know where I was. Paul says the same thing, you know, um, about his thorn in the flesh and his weakness and those type of things. But that's where the power is. The power is in, is in humility and joining my suffering with Christ. And he pours grace and mercy into that spot and the Holy Spirit and miracles take place. It's a one. It's not always easy because you know I'm flesh and I want to control things. I, I and I always struggle with that, you know. But 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 I know from my own story that when I was at my worst, I experienced Christ's mercy and He put people in my life because I was my fiat was okay, Lord. I can't do this anymore. Please help me. And I and I go with I go with with that mindset when I see my clients. I I, I say you know if not for the grace of God, that could be me. You know, that humility thing. It's only because of God's grace that I'm sitting on this side of this table. I'm sitting on this side of the... It's just because of God's grace and His mercy. And that, and I remind myself of that. And I think with that mindset, I see the Holy Spirit moving and giving me wisdom and moving within my clients, people that I work with, because I give the Holy Spirit space. But it took me a long time to do that because it meant to me being humble and surrendering and saying, okay, Lord, um, this is your child. Give me wisdom as we as we work together. Dr. Robbins, you yeah. and the cross, your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I I, had an experience of brokenness several times in my life that were periods of spiritual development. But the, the, when I came back to the church, it was, there, was a, there was a brokenness that uh, you know, brought me to my knees. And when I went to a retreat, I was able to, you know, I think that gave me, I was in the right place. It's like God sort of very... You know, he came after me. He pursued me pretty aggressively, <laughs> and uh, and I uh, because I was resistant to it. You, when you resist what God has for you, that can be felt as a pain, as inner conflict. You know, and also my woundedness, my my attachment to my sin, and needing to sort of begin to overcome that. It can be a painful process, a process of purgation, uh, and uh, I, I definitely had a very powerful experience of that. Uh, I see it with clients. I see it with, uh, you know, in the psychological research that, again, this concept of post-traumatic growth is kind of touches on that, you know, this idea that sometimes suffering can be, if people, if during periods of suffering, people can, it opens them up, it breaks them open, right? To be out of this sort of self-contained individual mentality to a sense of the transcendent, you can have a brokenness that becomes an openness. And I found that in my research, in my, when I was doing studying joy, I was studying people who, have, who uh, live a joyful life. So I solicited people who thought they lived a joyful life to tell me about their story. And what I found remarkable is everybody started the story with immense suffering. They, they all talked about a lot of suffering in their life. And there, this moment of joy is being this sort of transformation of that suffering into meaning through a kind of transcendence, something beyond themselves. To, to, all these spiritual themes are so pervasive in that literature. But I began to use the metaphor of a seed because it seemed to fit fit the the commonalities between the descriptions. So, you know, you plant a seed in the ground. That's humility, you know, the humus, the, the earth, right? You know, you're sort of plant, humility sort of plants you. And then you're broken open like the seed. And when you begin to break open, then new life 
you know, springs out. And the ecstatic, the expression of that opening up is the is felt in one's affect as joy. It's that flowering of oneself. But brokenness, humility and brokenness are preconditions for that opening up, that flowering of the of the of the spirit and the and and psychologically and spiritually. Well, yeah. I thought we weren't going to get to talk about the incarnation, but you kind of just did, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a big part of this. And, you know, and so there's something else, too. And I, I wish I could remember off the top of my head where he talks about it. But Pope Benedict XVI uh, talked about, and it might have been when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, about how beauty wounds us. And what he means by that is sort of like it, it, that idea that beauty breaks us open, right? It, mm-hmm. it it kind of opens up the space for the transcendent to to kind of get our attention. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that this could be talked about. And like I say, this could have been a conversation that went a thousand different directions. I had my script, but you guys both got into some, we got into Marxism, we got into, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, we didn't even get to talk about, uh, I mean, and Deacon, uh, you, you talked about this a little bit, but we didn't even get to talk about, you know, the, the way that the sacraments operate um, as, uh, as healing balms um, in the life of, of the wounded person in the Catholic Church. I mean, it, the conversation is just so rich, right? There's so many things that are part of the conversation that, that aren't in the toolbox of a Calvinist, right? They're not in the toolbox of even a Wesleyan like I was. They're not in the toolbox of an atheist or an agnostic or a secular humanist. But um, before we let you go, I know that um, some of our listeners are going to be interested in some of the things that you're up to. Uh, Briefly, uh, Deacon Kevin, can you mention um, what you're doing with St. Augustine? Yeah, so St. Augustine is um, St. Augustine Behavioral System. We are... um, we are a group of Catholic clinicians. Um, actually, I'm networking with my doctor, mycatholicdoctors.com and other Catholic organizations. We've created a network of Orthodox-minded Catholics who are involved in healthcare who share the same kind of values. And, um, and so what we're doing, um, I'm connecting with other health, Catholic healthcare systems, connecting psychiatrists, um, counselors, um, physicians, nurses, all healthcare providers who have a common philosophy of Orthodox Catholicism. I mean, they're faithful to the magisterium teaching of the church and, and, um, and creating a network. So if someone comes to us needing anyone, any care within the healthcare field, whether it's counseling or a physician, uh, we can provide referrals and provide care. So is, so this is, so that's the group within my group where I'm in Oklahoma, I provide counseling and we have a parish based location and, and we're, we're doing other things like doing education for lay people when it comes to mental health and those type of things. So a lot of a lot of practical things and, and providing um, professional counseling. But really, what we're really looking on doing is developing a national-wide network of like-minded Catholic healthcare providers. They need within us as healthcare providers, we, they need formation. So that's what our organization is about: is providing an alternative in healthcare. You know, um, for anybody that's seeking care, but from an Orthodox-minded Catholic clinician. In, in, in one of those areas. And we got a link to that, and I'll put it in the show notes as well so people can find yeah. out more. And I encourage people also to keep uh, in prayer your diocese, the Diocese of Tulsa, which is dealing with this yeah. in an extremely real way uh, with the shooting yeah. that recently took place at a Catholic hospital. Um, yeah. uh, so staff yeah. of a Catholic hospital were killed in that uh, situation. So, I mean, that's about as ground level as these realities get. Um, Dr. Yeah. Brent Robbins, if our listeners want to find out what you're doing at Point Park University, how can they get in touch with you? Well, if you want to reach out by email, my email is brobbins at pointpark.edu. I have a website. Uh, there's a website page for me on the web, uh, 
on the university website. You just look up uh, Point Park University, Brent Dean Robbins, and my page comes up first in Google search. Uh, there's a description of there, and there, you know you can get a sense of uh, you know what kind of research I'm doing from looking at my CV and uh, and uh, you know look at Google Scholar. I have a Google Scholar page that talks about some of the stuff I'm doing. I have a book called The Medicalized Body and Anesthetic Culture, which it, which looks at uh, how medicine has influenced the culture and medical coping with death and anxiety in this sort of within a secular sort of humanist context has sort of influenced how people cope with death and dying in ways that create a kind of psychic numbing, a kind of closing off of uh, empathy and strategies for helping physicians and also the rest of the world for uh, to being uh, with uh, risk, dealing with risk and death in, uh, in, jo in our jobs and how to do that in a way that will give you resiliency and ability to, you know, uh, withstand those challenges in the workplace. Well, y'all opened up about 12 more topics just when I asked you. Yeah. To so, <laughs> uh, but I very much encourage people to go check out the show notes uh, to find out more about Deacon Kevin Stevenson's uh, work. And I know, oh, gosh, I get contacted by people all the time who are looking for uh, counselors um, that share their Catholic faith and that can involve the sacramental question in this. And, and of course, all kinds of people who are looking for the kind of work that you're doing, Dr. Robbins, too, about, you know, how do we really understand what the human person is by, you know, engaging the Catholic perspective on human dignity with, you know, what the research is that's out there. So definitely go check out our guests, Deacon Kevin, Brent. I really appreciate your time. And I'm so glad that you guys got to connect with one another. I encourage you, um, all of our listeners, to go check out your Journey Home episodes as well. Thank you so much. Uh, it's Thank my you, pleasure. Matt. It's wonderful to meet you, Deacon Kevin. And, and great to see you again, Matt. Yeah, likewise, Brent. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us on another episode of CH Network Presents. Uh, again, check us out at chnetwork.org. Uh, you can find all the previous episodes of the show. You can also go to our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Plug into a great group of people who are exploring these kinds of questions all the time and encouraging one another. And of course, if you want to support the work, go to chnetwork.org donate. I'm Matt Swaim. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again next time.